Hello and welcome back to the One Book One Northwestern podcast. I'm Baylor Spears and we're talking about the different themes of this year's One Book, Hidden Figures by Margot Shetterly. Last time we talked about Northwestern's theatrical production of Legally Blonde. In today's episode, we're going back to one of the main topics we've addressed over the past few episodes. We're talking about women of color in STEM at Northwestern. Specifically, I'll be highlighting the work of Heather Pinkett. She's a professor and researcher in Northwestern's Department of Molecular Biosciences. She also acted as one of the co-chairs for this year's One Book programming. I talked to her earlier this quarter about how she got into research, what her research at Northwestern entails, and issues surrounding getting women and minority groups into STEM fields. Northwestern's Department of Molecular Biosciences include 30 core faculty members. There are seven women, two of whom are women of color. Heather Pinkett is the only black woman in this group. To understand how Pinkett became one of the only black women in this department, it's important to know a little about her background, which influenced her interests in school and her future opportunities. This will be interesting. So I grew up in New York City. Um, but I was born in England. So uh, you could say my hometown was Dudley, England, or you can say my hometown is New York City. Um, I only lived in England for the first six years of my life in a town called uh, Bedfisher. Um, and then we moved to the United States, so. She says her parents, originally from Barbados and St. Kitts in the Caribbean, moved to the U.S. because of economic downturn in the U.K. and new opportunities in the U.S. We had a lot of family who were moving to the United States, and they said, you know, my mom was a midwife, and she loved what she did, and family members said, you know, well, New York's a perfect place to move and continue your education and part of the hospital system here, which at that time was, you know, uh, very strong. So my parents decided to kind of relocate for, you know, really good job opportunities. Pinkett says she always loved math and science, even as a child. It just made logical sense to me. So when I was in elementary school, you know, I was really good at math and I tutored other kids in math after school. And then I went on to a math and science high school. There, you know, you were presented with the opportunities to continue on, um, you know, with a really strong math program. But it wasn't until she entered school at Connecticut College that she fell in love with research. At that point, I was interested in a number of things. At one point, I thought I would go into child psychiatry. At another point, I thought I would go to med school. What I found was I had a love of research. Pinkett says opportunities doing lab research solidified this. One of her summers was spent at a National Science Foundation program at Colgate University. I basically spent a summer doing physical chemistry research and just absolutely loved it. The idea of working as a team really appealed to me, trying to answer one question but using different techniques, designing my own experiment, planning out my day, full days of research. You know, I found it really, really rewarding. And then that kind of set me on the track of wanting to do research as a career instead of just something that was like a hobby that I absolutely loved. Pinkett says she also spent time at the National Institute of Health. 
She earned her PhD at the University of Pennsylvania and a postdoctorate degree at the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena. These programs shaped many of her research interests. In the PhD program, she learned about X-ray crystallography, which she compared to an experiment you may have done in elementary school. If you've ever done an experiment where you've taken, let's say, a concentrated solution of sugar, and then you put a string in it, and you end up getting these tiny crystals that keep growing and expanding, right? X-ray crystallography is kind of like that. Pinkett says in X-ray crystallography, researchers take proteins and grow them in bacteria, then take the proteins and isolate them by evaporating out all the water to get a concentrated solution of the protein. Once this is done, the conditions can be made so that the solution becomes a crystal. What's in that crystal is your protein and repeating units. And the reason why this is really beneficial and where the X-ray part comes in is we shoot an x-ray beam through it and with the information we get when we take snapshots we can tell the location of every atom in that protein so what it gives us is a three-dimensional atomic structure of any protein of interest x-ray crystallography is still a key piece of her work today that's how the bug started i absolutely loved all aspects of being a researcher and being an extracrystallographer. It allows you to do biochemical experiments to understand things like how proteins bind to DNA, what sequence proteins recognize on the DNA, how tight that binding is. But then also, you don't just have to have that information, you can have the snapshot of the protein. And that was just so exciting to me um, that I knew that the next thing I'd want to do would have to involve X-ray crystallography. This is just what Pinkett did. During her postdoctoral degree, she studied ABC transporters, which are proteins that use energy to pump nutrients and toxins into and out of cells. And she uses X-ray crystallography to study them. How do these proteins recognize something very small and unique and then pump it either into or out of the cell? So we study how bacteria recognize and transport nutrients, and then also how higher ordered organisms recognize um, potential toxins like chemotropic drugs. Pinkett says knowing more about these transporters is significant because they are found in every organism, humans, bacteria, and animals, and hold an important role. They're found in every organ, and Transporters that I was interested in are the transporters that are responsible for multiple drug resistance. So these are the transporters you typically hear about when somebody's undergoing um, chemotherapy and they tend to recognize chemotropic drugs and then pump them out of the cell. So the tumor never shrinks because it doesn't get enough of a particular um, chemotoxin in the cell. During her postdoctoral program, Pinkett solved the structure of these proteins, and today in her lab, she studies these proteins in order to understand how they work in certain bacteria. One of the strains of bacteria I work on is called non-typable homophilus influenza, or NTHI, and we found that this bacteria has become quite resistant to antibiotics. 
So either you need to take more or you have re reoccurring ear infections. And there is an ABC transporter that the bacteria has that's involved in uh, finding ways to survive despite your own immune system. Pingit says they are trying to understand a few things about ABC transporters in this bacteria. One of the things that we're looking at is to try and understand the mechanism that the bacteria uses to avoid being killed off. And then also try to find a way to shut off the transporter that plays a role in this resistance mechanism. This is one of Pinkett's current lab projects, and she says each project typically lasts anywhere from three to five years. But in reality, projects are never done, right? So you may publish a bunch of papers on a project, and then as soon as you publish those papers, you discover a new and interesting question. So I may answer the question of, how does this protein recognize its substrate? But then the next set of questions is, how can we turn off this transporter? Can I design a drug to turn off this transporter? As we've discussed this year, women in underrepresented groups face circumstances and challenges when it comes to progressing in STEM. For the women of Hidden Figures, this meant outright discrimination and difficulties progressing in a field when no one thought women, especially black women, could succeed where they did. It's important to note that Pinkett's success is in a field with this lasting legacy. These legacies continue to affect the way the field is shaped, who enters the field, and who stays. Pinkett says some observations about changes in the field of research today are important for improving. We are now seeing a larger percentage of students from underrepresented groups in our labs who have different experiences and understanding that everyone is going to learn in a different way and treating everyone as individuals with an understanding of their backgrounds. But also realize that while the numbers of, or at least the ratios of male to females um, are looking better. And then also um, the number of underrepresented students in, in our um, programs are looking better. Um, they can get a lot better than they are, number one. Pinkett says another key realization is that at some point in the process, women are leaving the field. If we have a class of 50-50 male-female, but the amount of faculty members that we currently see isn't 50-50, where are we losing people in the pipeline? And if we're losing people in the pipeline in graduate school or in the postdocs, they're choosing not to go on to faculty positions, the question's going to be why. And in some instances, people make choices and say that this job is not for me. But I feel like there's a larger percentage of people who said it's not for me because I can't do it, it's not for me because I don't want to put myself through the experiences that I currently see. Pinkett says from her experience that it's often non-supportive environments that cause people to leave the field. She also says that good mentorship could be a factor in solving this. So I am a huge advocate of mentorship. I truly believe that every graduate student should have more than one mentor. The person you work directly for shouldn't be your only mentor 
during grad school. Pinkett explains there is a pretty strong correlation between success in science and good mentors. I've definitely read a few cases of other females who are very successful in the field of, um, you know, biochemistry, biophysics. And I think that there's something that we all seem to have in common. Um, and that is we usually ended up having really good mentors. In her own case, Pinkett says much of her success is the result of being informed in order to make strategic choices about mentorship and labs. I have been very strategic about the choices I've made in the career because I read upon the literature um, and read people's personal accounts of being a scientist, especially in the area of physics or biophysics. She explains being strategic meant going into interviews and knowing what questions to ask to make sure that she would be in a, in a supportive environment. When I enter a situation, whether or not it is my time at NIH as a researcher, I wasn't just picking a project to work on. I was picking a lab that would enable me to make advances. In that, it meant when I went to an interview, I also had to interview the person who was interviewing me. And I really, I feel like there's good research everywhere. But if you're in a situation where you're not getting the support you need, you're not valued, your opinions um, are not valued, then you will find that you won't advance very far in science. Pinkett says she was lucky to have two mentors that were extremely supportive of women in science and pushed her to advance. Graduate school is such a long commitment that you don't want to join a lab and then come to the realization that this person hasn't given any thought to mentoring a female, hasn't given any thought to mentoring a minority and what that means. What does this mean? Well, Pinkett explained there are specific topics like imposter syndrome that are shaped by factors such as race, socioeconomic background, and gender that a mentor needs to be able to talk about. Is my student suffering from imposter syndrome? Would this potentially be helped by having a conversation with them about imposter syndrome, talking about my personal experience, having them read a book on imposter syndrome, right? The worst thing about imposter syndrome is you usually think you can't do what you can or things are going really well and you second guess yourself because you feel like you don't belong there. Pinkett says training of mentors is important, however, because conversations only work when these issues are understood by the mentor. But the only way it works is if we're trained to understand imposter syndrome. If you're trained to understand stereotype threat, right? If, you, if you're not, then you just assume that you have a student who doesn't want to do this work anymore. And that's how you end up losing students in the pipeline. She says until mentors are properly trained that the best way to keep students from leaving is to get them experience in labs and help them choose labs strategically the best way for us to train our, our graduate students and our undergrads is to choose labs wisely. A lot of my friends who chose to leave science 
it really was their experience for four to five to six years in labs where they really felt that um, they weren't supported. Pinkett says helping undergraduates enter STEM research at Northwestern has taken on a few different forms. One of the most important ways that we can introduce both females and people from underrepresented groups into the sciences is to get them into the labs. And Northwestern has fully acknowledged that there are some hurdles when we try to do this. For instance, being able to do a 398 or 399, which is an independent study research project in a lab where you're putting in anywhere from 10 to 20 hours a week requires that you have a lot of free time. And many of our students find that juggling say a work-study job or a job off campus, prohibits them from being able to enter the lab and do research. Pinkett says grants and use of time in the summer work as way to get those who can't do research during the school year into labs. Having a program where students can spend their summers doing research and earn money is essential. The undergraduate research grants are something that not every institution offers and the institutions that do offer it have found that it gives students who usually wouldn't have an opportunity to do research during the summer it gives them a wonderful opportunity there so i've had students who every single year have entered um, my labs during the academic year and during the summer um, and have utilize these funds to live on campus and to be able to have room and board and, and do great research. Pinkett also says programs like NU Bioscientists and Bio and Chem Excel have opened up an opportunity for incoming undergraduate freshmen to be introduced to research early. And we gave them the opportunity to take classes around the subject of research and being a scientist and what does the scientific process look like. These students also had an opportunity to write a grant and do research during the summer after their first year. Most of the students in the program were recipients of Pell Grants. We had a large number of females and a large number of um, students from underrepresented groups. We like to think introducing them to the research their first year um, enabled them to start thinking about research early. Even with these measures of supporting students' aspirations, Pinkett acknowledged that Northwestern could still be doing more. Could we be doing better? Of course, definitely. I do not see enough black and brown faces in our labs doing research during the academic year. So if there is a way to fund students to do research during the academic year, instead of maybe giving a grade, that would be awesome. Um, if there's a way for us to reach out to more students and encourage them to join in labs early on, that's something that I think my department would really like to be involved in. That's all for this episode of the One Book One Northwestern podcast and the podcast this year. Thank you for tuning in and thank you to my editorial advisor, Dr. Ava Thompson-Greenwell.
Thank you.